Exodus chapter 5, verse 15. I'm going to read Exodus 5, 15 through 23, and then we'll just ask for God's help as we spend some time in his word this morning. You can follow along with me in your copy of the scripture. Exodus 5, 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet you say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your people. But he, that is Pharaoh, said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when he said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to Moses and Aaron, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. I don't uh, read the paper very much anymore ever since the internet came out. But it used to be when I was a kid, there was a comic strip in the paper called Family Circus. Is that still in the, in the paper anymore? I don't even know. Okay. Well, in the Family Circus, and I, if I remember, memory serves as sort of usually a one-panel kind of uh, cartoon, um, there was this character, it was a, a repeating character, but wouldn't show up all the time. He's like a little ghost that nobody could see, but what was written on his torso. What did it say? Anybody remember? Not me. And what would happen is a mom or a dad would walk into the kitchen, and there'd be a broken uh, plate on the ground. Who dropped a plate on the kitchen floor? Not me, all the kids would reply. Who broke this window? All the kids would Not me, they would all reply. Who spilled this milk all over the table? Not me, and who left our toys out? Who left the toys out? Not me. But see, what was funny is not me was actually the one doing it. The kids weren't lying. It was not me. It was a little ghost that nobody could see named not me. Something goes wrong. We don't know what caused it, but there's one thing we do know. It wasn't my fault. It's not my fault, and there's a real, real good chance that not only is it not my fault, it's probably your fault. Or it's somebody else's fault. What we have here in the life of the people of Israel is a people who have believed, they have trusted what God is up to, but now they find themselves under extraordinary pressure, and that's what we're going to title our message today is Faith Under Pressure. And we want to look at three questions and see how we might examine what happens inside the human heart when we pursue God by faith, but also experience extraordinary pressure faith under pressure. And let's look at what happened uh, to these folks and maybe examine our own hearts a little as well. Now remember, the people of Israel believed God and they went to Pharaoh and said, you've got to let us go. And Pharaoh said, no. 
And now he is saying, you have to make bricks, but I'm not going to provide you the straw for your bricks, but you have to keep making the same number of bricks, even though you have to walk all over the countryside to find the straw. And now what they are doing, this was in verse 14, they weren't making their quota. And so the taskmasters the, uh, were beating the foreman. The hierarchy of authority, there was Pharaoh, and he had Egyptian taskmasters who then uh, were over Israeli foremen. And those foremen were in charge of, of work gangs. So the foremen were a Hebrew uh, bosses of Hebrew work gangs. And the foremen weren't getting the job done, and so the Egyptian taskmasters were beating them. And they find themselves under extreme pressure. Faith under pressure. Look at verses 15 through 18. First question, who do you believe is strong? Faith under pressure. You have to answer this question, who do you believe is strong? If you're going to have a tug-of-war match, you've got a choice between choosing a, a kindergartner kid and a guy who competes in the world's strongest man competition. Who are you going to choose? The strong guy. He's, his muscles have muscles. If you want to win tug of war, you get the biggest guy, the strongest guy. That's who you're going to pick for your team because he can accomplish what you need to accomplish. So now Israel wants Pharaoh to let them go, and they're under intense pressure and persecution, and they want to fix this problem. The foremen, as it turns out, don't like getting beaten. They want the beatings to stop, and so therefore, they, who can fix this problem? Who do they believe is strong? Who do they go to? Verse 15, the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. The problem was they were getting beaten because there was no straw. The solution is to go to Pharaoh so that they might get an answer to their problem. Look what happens in verses 15 and 16. This word is used three times regarding themselves. Is they're talking to Pharaoh. Why do you treat, what does it say? Your servants this way. Why no straw is given to your servants. And behold, Pharaoh, your servants are being beaten. They're referring to themselves as the servants of who? Pharaoh. They call themselves Pharaoh's servants three times. Are they servants of Pharaoh? No. They are servants of the Most High God. In Exodus 4.31, flip back, it might be just on the previous page, the people of God believed when they had heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. What do you have to do when you worship someone? You have to agree they're awesome. That's what worship means. They worship God on Sunday. Okay, I know, I'm contextualizing. On Monday, they worship Pharaoh again. God, we love you, but Pharaoh gets the job done. So they're going to Pharaoh because he seems like the strong one. He gets his way. They aren't servants of Pharaoh. They are servants of the Most High God, but the beatings have seemed to convince them of otherwise. God seems powerful, but Pharaoh can beat us. God seems powerful, but Pharaoh can take away the raw materials for the bricks we have to make. These are not people of God, or people of Pharaoh. These are people of God, but they're not acting like it. You know, the disciples in the New Testament were in the same situation in Acts chapter 5. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. I'm just going to look at it for a moment. 
in Acts chapter 5, Jesus had, of course, ascended, and he had told them to make known the gospel, that Christ has risen from the grave to save sinners. And so they're going around Jerusalem proclaiming the risen Christ. All of Jerusalem, people are getting healed. Uh, people are getting saved. Thousands thousands of people are coming together. And, of course, the religious leaders don't like this at all. So the religious leaders bring the disciples in, and they tell them, stop preaching Christ. And what do the disciples say to them? Well, you tell us what we ought to do. Should we obey you or God? Because you're telling us something different than God said. And they get real uptight over this. This is what it says in Acts 5.40. They called them in, and they, guess what they did to them? They beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Verse 41, listen, a little bit different response than we see in Exodus. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That's weird. I mean, you read it, it seems very nice, but that's weird. And have you ever gotten excited about getting beaten? These guys, can you believe that we were counted worthy enough to take a beating for Jesus? Let's go preach that some more. Faith under pressure. Who do you believe is strong? Who do the disciples believe is strong? They believe a guy who can beat death is strong. The people of Israel had not yet seen that. Back over to Exodus chapter 5. The people of Israel find themselves in trouble. They find themselves in a deadly situation. As a result of their trouble, they believe Pharaoh is strong, and so they get something backwards. Listen, here's how I might put it. In their trouble, they go to Pharaoh for help, and they blame God for their problems. What they ought to be doing is going to God for help and understanding that Pharaoh is the cause of their problems. But the reason they've got it backwards is somewhere in their mind, they have been convinced Pharaoh's the strong one. Under pressure, when faith is under pressure, we go to who we believe is strong. That's where we discover if we actually think God's hand is strong, if God answers prayer. We have to answer and um, come to this uh, realization as Israel did. God's way of saving is not our way. God saves us, and before that salvation is complete, have you noticed we're not in heaven yet? Have you noticed when you got saved, you didn't immediately show up in heaven? God's way of saving us is to redeem us and then to work out that salvation through the troubles of this life. That's not our way. We don't like that. In our flesh, in our disobedience, maybe even in our, our rebellion, we say, God, your way is hard and not sure that we like it. And that's exactly where the people of Israel found themselves. They were under pressure. Their faith was bringing about difficulty in their life. And the question is, did they believe God was strong? And they, did they believe God is good? He is both. But their knees were buckling. Faith under pressure. Who do you believe is strong? Okay, next couple of verses. Look at 19, 20, and 21. Faith under pressure. Who do you believe is responsible? In 2015, the Seattle Seahawks played in the Super Bowl against the New England Cheaters. Patriots. I'm sure they've never cheated on purpose. 
I don't know if you watch the game or familiar with the game. Um, Seahawks were on the one-yard line at the end of the game. They just had to score one touchdown, one-yard touchdown, and basically there's no way Patriots could come back, right? Um, and they passed the ball. Now, those of you who are Seahawks fans, where, where's that one other guy? Um, I don't know if you knew this or not, they had a player playing for them at the time, a guy named Marshawn Lynch. He had a nickname. What'd they call it? Beast Mode. Because this guy could not be stopped. On the one-yard line with Super Bowl on the line, who do you give the ball to? No one except Marshawn Lynch. And they passed the ball. Patriots intercepted it. And my faith got a little shaky in that moment. <laughs> no, God is still good. I'm kidding. Everybody after that game, whose fault is this? Who made this call? One Hall of Fame football player said, this was not the worst uh, play called in uh, a Super Bowl, so don't worry about this. This was the worst play called in the history of the National Football League. <laughs> Whose fault is this? Unfortunately, uh, Pete Carroll, the head coach of the CF Club, it's my fault, my call, and it was dumb. And we all said, amen. <laughs> but that's what happens. Faith under pressure, things get bad, and we go, what is who's responsible for this? Look at verses 19, 20, and 21. The foreman of the people of Israel saw they were in trouble, and they said, when they heard that they had to keep their brick-making going, verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron. That would have been fun to watch. The Lord judge you. When you say the Lord judge you, what that means is you want God to smite you, to send you to judgment. Can I rephrase this in a way that might offend you? Because they were being offensive. Moses and Aaron, go to hell. And God send you there for what you did to us. They blamed them in their try. said, this is your fault. And we hope God sends you to hell for it. Now there's something in law enforcement and the legal world that's called the mama bear syndrome and it doesn't just apply to mothers it applies to parents and loved ones who have done something bad i don't know if you knew this but they interviewed the loved ones and family members of the boston marathon bombers as well as the loved ones and family members of ted kaczynski the unabomber as well as serial killer ted bundy and guess what they all said they're innocent there is no way they could do that the fact is, we are not really good at figuring out whose fault it is that we're having a hard time. And these folks believe Moses and Aaron have caused the problems. And by extension, because Moses and Aaron were sent by God, God has caused them a problem. The trouble is, they're going to die at the hands of Pharaoh. The solution is justice on Moses and Aaron, and maybe even a little bit on God himself. They called for justice by God's hands on God's people. They wanted their trouble to be alleviated by watching Moses and Aaron suffer. Thinking back to Exodus 4.31, remember, they believed. They trusted that God's work of redemption was going to be done. They were going to be taken out of slavery into the promised land. They had no idea it was going to be a, a path of trouble. And now that they were on the path of redemption and it was really hard, they were blaming somebody for the problems. They had lost sight of the fact they are redeemed 
They may still be in Egypt. They may still be under pressure, but they are as good as redeemed. And they did what we always do when we're under pressure, especially when our faith is under pressure. We say, whose fault is it? Whose fault is it? We've been doing this since the beginning. Look at Genesis 3.8. Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit so they might have the knowledge of good and evil without asking God. God then comes to visit them. He calls out to them in Genesis 3.8, Where are you? And Adam replied, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? What did the man say? Let's get this straight, God. The woman... It gets worse. You gave me, made me eat. So God, you, first of all, didn't ask for it, just so you know. You gave me the woman. So the one you gave me made me mess this up. It doesn't say it. It should be in there. God was doing this, trying not to laugh. Then the Lord said to the woman, What's, what, what happened here? What did she say? The serpent. By extension, God, I don't know if you know this or not, you created everything like a week ago. The serpent you made, he deceived me. So under pressure, they blame everybody but themselves. And this is what we do. We've been doing this since the beginning of time. When things get bad, especially when things get bad in a relationship with the Lord, I don't know whose fault it is, it's not me, and it's likely everyone around me. If they would all finally get their act together... Maybe my life would be halfway decent, we might say. Go back to Exodus chapter 5 and look at the silliness that ensues. You, this is what the people say, the Lord look at you and judge because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. You have poured a sword in their hand to kill us. So what they're doing is they're blaming Moses and Aaron for Pharaoh wanting to destroy the people of Israel. Why is that ridiculous? Pharaoh's been trying to kill the people of Israel now for 40 years. This is not a new thing. 40 years earlier, he decided there were too many uh, Israelites, and so he tells the, um, uh, the women who deliver the babies, why is that word not coming to my head? Midwives. Thank you, Seth. Lord have mercy. It's not my fault. It's your fault. I can't remember that word. That's for sure. He said, hey, you kill the baby boys when they're born. They, that didn't work. So they told all the Egyptians, throw the baby boys in the Nile when they're born. That didn't work. So let's enslave them and work them to death. And that hasn't worked. So 40 years, Egypt has been trying to kill Israel. Moses and Aaron show up, and they blame them for Egypt trying to kill Israel. Does that make any sense at all? No, because blame never does. We've been blaming from the beginning. Faith under pressure. We blame anyone else that they might be responsible and not us. But we must understand the results of what happens when we do this. Look at Lamentations verse 316. You can turn there if you want. If you're not sure where it is, there's no shame in using your table of contents. That's what it's there for. I'm going to begin reading while you look for it. Lamentations 316. This is the prophet Jeremiah, his poem written after he saw the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. He had watched people starve to death, die of disease, die of, um, of war. He had watched 
People in their starvation consume their own dead family members. And he writes this poem. God has made my teeth grind on gravel, and he has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it. You always said, God, remember my suffering? Because I do. My soul is bowed down within me. Jeremiah is suffering. He has seen things he cannot cope with. And he is saying that the, the condition of his soul is poisoned. That's what we talk about, wormwood and gall. The condition of his suffering and the pressure that he has endured is poison to his own soul. But look how he follows this up. Verse 21. And this is on your verse card. Uh, did you get a verse card this morning? You might want to hold on to that. It's, uh, these verse 21 22 are on this verse card. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. The reason I put this on the verse card, you read this verse and you say, oh, that's very cute. That belongs on a Hallmark card. But did you just read where that happened? This is not a guy who's having a good day saying this. This is a guy who wishes he was dead saying this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to end. To an end, They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So what Jeremiah is saying here, is to live in the world of blame is to poison my own soul. But to try and open my eyes and see even the smallest glimmer of the steadfast love of the Lord will carry me through. I can live and wallow in the whose fault is this, or I can try and open my eyes and by the grace of God see even the smallest glimpse of maybe his steadfast love is new every morning. And he says here, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. What Jeremiah is saying is what God is trying to convince us. We think it would be good to get saved and go to heaven. And Jeremiah says, it is good for us to have to wait for that day to come, even under significant pressure. Hope in the midst of that pressure will bring us life. Faith under pressure. Who do you believe is responsible? Dione Wilson's husband was a police officer in San Leandro. I don't know when this happened, but he was killed in the line of duty. And she said it took a long time for her to heal over that. This is what she said. For many years, I carried around so much vengeance and hate. I realized at a certain point I had nothing left. I engaged in a lot of self-destructive behavior. I tried to buy my way out of grief. I tried to drink my way out of grief. But I just couldn't figure out how to get out of 
being embroiled in that moment. She says this, Initially, I thought the trial and conviction would bring some sort of comfort and closure. I had this little light at the end of the tunnel, she said. I kept thinking, it's almost over. He's going to get convicted. He's going to be on death row, and I'm going to feel better. And then when it happened, and he did get put on death row, I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I thought, it really didn't work. I don't feel better. I feel worse, because now I'm let down. Faith under pressure, who do we believe is responsible? When justice doesn't heal, when the justice we want can't heal, where do we go with all that pressure? Look at verses 22 and 23. Faith under pressure, we go to the one we believe is in charge. Let me read uh, Exodus 5, 22 and 23 to remind us of what it said. Moses turned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you done evil to the people? Why did you ever send me? Since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done nothing but evil, and you haven't delivered your people at all. I don't know if you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. It's a World War II movie where uh, a fictional account of a woman who lost three of her four sons in World War II, and one son was left, Private James Ryan, So the military saw fit to send this captain, Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, and a group of soldiers in to get Private Ryan out of harm's way so that this mom might have at least one of her sons. Now, as you would expect, this unit of men weren't too pleased with this mission. Number one, it didn't contribute a whole lot to winning the day, conquering their enemies. Secondly, they didn't quite see why their lives should be put in danger for this one guy. And they were complaining about it and griping about it and grousing about it. They're marching along. And the whole time, Captain Miller is keeping quiet. One of the guys who are walking with them, a private Ribbon, says this. So, Captain, what about you? Don't you have any gripes? Captain Miller said this. I don't gripe to you, Ribbon. I'm a captain. There's a chain of command. Gripes go up. Always up, not down. Always up. You gripe to me, I gripe to my superior officer, so on, so on, and so on. I don't gripe to you. I don't gripe in front of you. You should know that as a ranger. Private Ribbon says, well, I'm sorry, sir. But hey, let's just pretend maybe you're not a captain, or maybe that I'm a major. What would you say then? Captain Miller says, well, well, in that case, I'd say, this is an excellent mission, sir with an extremely valuable objective, sir, worthy of my best efforts, sir. Moreover, I feel heartfelt sorrow for the mother of Private James Ryan, and I am willing to lay down my life and the life of my men, especially you, Ribbon, (laughs) to ease her suffering. Faith under pressure. Who do you believe is in charge? Gripes go up. Where does Moses go? Lord, What in the world is going on? See, we look at Moses' prayer here, and we want to throw him under the bus. But Moses' prayer here is a heartfelt prayer of a believer. It says, God, what is happening? I'm going to go to the one who's in charge. I don't know what you're doing, Lord, but ever since I showed up here, everything's gone to pot. 
What are you up to? He goes to the one who was in charge in prayer. His faith under pressure didn't send him to join in the complaining of the people. It didn't send him to Pharaoh to try and figure things out. He goes straight to the head honcho and says, God, I don't know what's going on, and I need to know what's going on. This happened to Jesus as well. His brothers, or I should say his half-brothers, born of Mary and Joseph, were telling him when the Feast of Booths came around that he should go and make himself known at the feast to declare himself publicly as the Messiah. And this is what Jesus says to those, his brothers, that the Bible says didn't even believe in him at that point. Jesus said to them, this is John 7, 6, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. My time has not yet come, Jesus says, but your time, you say it's always time for God to show up. It's always time for God to fix everything for you. For God, though, he has a very particular way he wants to do things that are for our greatest good and his greatest glory. And for him, the time is when it's time. For us, what time should we have suffering go away? Right now. For us, the time is always today. That's when the suffering should end. That's when the Lord should return. That's when the health should get better and the finances should come in or my Yahoo, what's his name, should figure out that I'm right and he's wrong. And Jesus said, for you, the time is always right. And this is what Moses, he's coming to God, what are you going to do? And God is saying, hey, listen, we'll see this next week. The time's coming. For you, it's always time. For me, the time must be at the right spot. So Moses goes to God and says, God, you brought trouble. Why did you even send me when there, I don't even see any redemption coming at all? Can you believe Moses would pray this kind of prayer? I think his prayer is amazing. Think over to 1 Kings 18. There were a bunch of false prophets. Elijah had challenged these false prophets to pray to their God that he might send fire to consume the sacrifice. And what did they do to try and get their God to show up? They bowed down and they sang all day and they sang all afternoon and they, they beat themselves and they cut themselves with swords and Elijah said maybe he's on vacation maybe he's in the bathroom I mean I don't know keep trying they, and God never shows up because the, the false prophets believe the same thing we all believe that in order to get God to show up we have to appease him figure out what he wants so that he might show up and do something Moses doesn't pray that way what does Moses do? He barges into the throne. What in the world are you doing, God? Are you serious? Who approaches God this way? What kind of person would pray that would just barge in and tell God he doesn't know what he's doing? I don't know. Look at Exodus thirty-three eleven. I think it'll tell us. Exodus 33.11 tells us a little bit about the Lord. When all the, pillars saw the, when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Was God offended that Moses barged in and gave him a hard time? I'm pretty sure God could handle Moses. Why would Moses do such a thing? Because God was his friend. That's what you do with friends. You just let it hang out. God, this is what's up. I don't understand what you're, I don't have a clue what you're doing. 
Funny thing is, this is exactly the same relationship we have with God. Jesus says this in John 15, no longer do I call you servants. A servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you what? Friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I have called you friends. We are his friends through his redemptive work on the cross, called by him to trust him for forgiveness that we might barge into the throne room and say, what are you doing, God? This doesn't make any sense to me. Are you worried about offending God? You sent his son to the cross. I think you've crossed that bridge. I would suggest perhaps one of the best things us Christians could do for our prayer life is to get over our need to be so polite. Do you think God has no idea what's going on in there? He knows. I think prayer, Moses' prayer here is a fantastic display of faith under pressure. He goes to the one in charge and says, I don't know what's going on, God. Moses was used by God in his weakness. And God will use us even in our weakness because of Christ. A couple of things, we'll end with this. First of all, God can handle you. I don't know if you've ever had a bad attitude as a Christian. I do know. I was trying to be nice. You don't need to be fake with God. You don't need to appease God. You don't need to try and be polite with God. He knows what's going on. You might as well just tell him. God can handle you. Second thing. God is using your trouble for you. He is not giving you trouble because he's annoyed with you. He's not giving you trouble because he doesn't like you. He's not giving you trouble because he's in the bathroom. He is using the trouble in your life for you. He has visited you. He has seen it. He knows every ounce of the pain you're enduring, and he's saying, I got you. You're going to make it. It's going to be good. God is using your trouble for you for good. Some of us ask this, can God use me? Could God possibly use me for any kind of significant work in his kingdom? And I would suggest when we look at the life of Moses, we will look at the people of Israel without even taking time to look at the life of Job, Gideon, David. Don't get me started on Samson. This guy started horrible and it got worse. And then in Hebrews 11, he's mentioned as some stellar guy with faith. Can God use you? There is no way God can't, even in and especially during times of great trouble. Finally, this, the people of Israel didn't expect trouble to come. They thought now that God had showed up, all the trouble was over, and they didn't see it coming. But the fact is, Jesus told us we would have trouble in this life until it's over or he returns. We know what's coming, and what we need to do by faith, under pressure, believe he's in charge and follow him through it. When we get to the end, we're going to say, oh, that was good. You know what you were doing.